everyone, thanks for listening. Um, really excited today. I got a someone I'm proud to call a friend of mine, Ali Rizvion. Ali is a well, he's the author of Atheist Muslim, which is uh, an excellent, excellent book, and you should all read it. He's also a co-host, secular <laughs> jihadist for Muslim enlightenment. Also, you're a pathologist by training, right? I am. I'm, a, I'm an oncologic pathologist, a cancer pathologist by training. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was hoping to have you know, just talk to you about how, like, how we're talking about Islam, let's just say. Like, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, focus on, like, talking about different difficult topics and, mm-hmm. you know, like, especially, like I said, your book and then the podcast you're doing, it just, like, the discourse around that and, you know, how it's going bad, like, I'll give you a silly example that I saw today, and it's silly, and it's really scary. Mm-hmm. The Chinese government didn't have any mention of the Year of the Pig in their New Year's celebration. And when they were, like, uh, ABC Australia was in China, and this was going on, people were complaining that they censored all the complaints about the fact that the Year of the Pig wasn't mentioned. And they spoke to some Chinese people in different parts of China, and some of them were saying, well, well, because they weren't aware of what was going on with the Uyghurs. And they're saying, oh, well, we have to not offend our Muslim neighbors. Oh, the, the Uyghurs, so those are, those are the, that's a Muslim population uh, in China yeah, that is being oppressed. Yeah. Yeah, that's one. There's yeah. like about a million of them. They're a specific section of China. They're, you know, they're like a certain, I don't know, I guess tribe or whatever, the, you know, ethnic. But how does, uh, how, how does, how would the year of the pig because, offend? Because, because well, the, the one of the ones I, I can read you exactly. Oh, which pig! Is, is it the pig? Yeah, exactly the pig. And one of them said, uh, one woman, <laughs> one woman they interviewed said, "We need to avoid talking about the pig to respect the Muslim community who consider pigs as their heavenly ancestor." I mean, so I mean that's, that's completely wrong, anyways. <laughs> but, but I mean, like uh, the population, like the government is not mentioning the year of the pig. To, you know they're saying to not offend the Muslims but at the same time they're interring like over a million Muslims and you know so I mean there's 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 that but then there's you know all the stuff that goes on out here like either you know one extreme to the other it's it's really hard to find a measured approach to talk about issues with Islam uh, yeah I know and even China's struggling with it huh so yeah, I I don't know I don't know that much about the story, and I really don't know which side to go with, because <laughs> I mean this is one of those things where, you know, you've got it's just a, I mean, just break out the popcorn, right? I mean, you've got China on one side, and then you know you've got them being apologetic towards Islam on the other side, and then you have uh, them actually doing much much worse things to the Muslims in China, the Uyghurs, than than um, uh, <laughs> than using to then celebrating the year of the pig which would be a very minor thing in comparison so yeah there's a that the, i guess that is a good example of of the confusion around this about how to talk about it um so it is yeah it, it has become a little comical hasn't it well okay i mean that's just it it's you're getting uh, i mean the, the woman's march that's another one like they they still have you know, the hijab is their symbol. They still have, you know, so it's, you know, I, I know that doesn't really, it's not really talking about Islam, but it's, you know, the, they're denying that. They're in denial that, you know, their leadership 
is promoting something that's terribly misogynistic, mm-hmm. but they're calling themselves a women's march. And I like, you know, it's, but it's not, I think uh, with the, the women's march situation over like the, the very first time it happened um, until now, I think there has been a bit of an encouraged development, encouraging development in the sense that there are many mainstream uh, people who have realized uh, who've, who've acknowledged the anti-Semitic overtones and everything that some of the leaders, well, people like Linda Sarsour have, right? They've understood they've broken away from it, including the the woman who founded the Women's March, uh, as well as uh, a lot of uh, mainstream liberal um, women celebrities like Alyssa Milano and uh, Deborah Messing and some of, some of these people who've uh, broken away from it, dissociated from it, because... It didn't turn out to be uh, what they thought it would be, and this is something, uh, to our credit, we've been talking about for a couple of years. So that's something that I would see as encouraging um, in the sense that uh, you know, it, it is not one of those things that everybody is taking seriously uh, like they did some time ago. Okay, sorry, it's it's I, become I, diluted. I, but... yeah, sorry, I didn't interrupt. I, I phrased that wrong then because I wasn't talking uh-huh. about like, I, yeah, I am glad that it is being denounced and that local chapters of women's marches are disassociating themselves from the national organization. Right. Right. I was talking right, more about yeah. the organization themselves. Like they're still. Yeah. They're, 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 they're still, not, they're not disassociating with themselves. It's, it's just like, how are you holding these two things at the same time? Right. They are. And you know, the, the thing with the, um, his job is on our podcast on secular jihadists for a Muslim enlightenment or sexual jihadists for Muslim, which one, whichever one you want, um, <laughs> we had uh, we, as you phrased it, uh, which I love. I'm going to suggest that name change to Armin. But it, the, <laughs> the the one thing is one thing that I realized uh, when we spoke to Masi Alinejad. Masi Alinejad is uh, um, she's the Iranian woman who started the My Stealthy Freedom. Uh, campaign. She also wrote a book called The Wind in My Hair, uh, which is a fantastic book. Armin says it's, it's one of the best books he's ever read, um, where she ex- spoke about her experience as a as a, a woman who lived in Iran. She was a journalist. She used to wear the hijab, and now she's advocating for the freedom to take it off. Um, and one thing uh, that she said that resonated with me was that uh, if we want to have and I'm kind of paraphrasing and adding some of my own interpretation into it, is that if we want to have a good, productive dialogue about uh, this issue with the hijab, um, especially here in the West, uh, then we have to frame it as an issue of choice, as an issue of women's choice, right? So we have to, uh, to bring any kind of attention to the symbol, we have to talk about how um, the vast majority of women in the world who wear it and that's millions and millions and millions of women uh, who live in Saudi Arabia, where it's it's mandated by the government um, that they have to wear it. In Iran, where they have to wear it. In other countries, where you know that they have to wear it because of certain just societal uh, pressures. Uh, like, for instance, if they don't wear it in some areas of Pakistan, then they can be assaulted, and and nobody's going to protect them because they're going to think that we're asking for it, right? So. Um, by their fathers, by their husbands, by their mothers, right? By the, so, so when you have um, when you frame it that way, that the vast majority of women are not allowed to wear it, and you show images of them burning their hijabs and taking off their hijabs in Iran, um, that is a that crux of choice, that topic of choice. When we bring that into it, I think it makes for a much more compelling argument 
that appeals uh, much more universally uh, to people. Um, so, I, and and there is there is confusion about this because, you know, on the one hand, um, you know, there there are women who choose to wear it over here. You don't want to sound like you're telling them what to wear. I know that it's a faulty thing. I know that the symbol has a history and all of that, but you know, you the, 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 you, you don't want to do that. At the same time, you also want to highlight the fact that majority of women are forced to wear it. So, um, that I think is a good way to frame it. The the women's march, obviously, as you said, has it very very confused. Um, they're unable to figure out, unfortunately, that um, you know what what they're celebrating here. Like, you know, for example, our friend, our mutual friend, Yasmin Mohammed, uh, you know, she fought for 20 years to be able to take off the hijab, which was used as a tool to oppress her. And she, she was here in Canada. She grew up in Canada and was used as a tool to, to diminish her. And she fought for 20 years. She finally got the courage to take it off. She talks about how difficult it was. Uh, she talks about how she broke away from her family. She was completely excommunicated from her community. She had to start over completely on her own. Um, and then she sees images on TV of people in the Women's March wearing the hijab as a symbol of defiance and as a symbol of feminism. And she found it not just outrageous, but she found it triggering. It was emotionally upsetting to her for good reason, because... That was a symbol that was at the, at the heart of so much of the abuse that she suffered uh, growing up. Uh, so, so that distinction is something that uh, I, th- I think um, when you have uh, w- when you have uh, activist groups, often uh, there's there's a very binary kind of thing. It has to be this way or that way, and and they don't. I, I don't think they understand those nuances and the lived experiences of people and how the the same symbol has been caused so much pain to some people and it has caused you know whereas other people use it by choice right so um yeah i mean okay i just like just want to because there's a lot of paper i mean like there's i think on that same point i think i've done i i I wanted to change the way i i was talking about it because i've never okay i never talked about it saying we have to force people to stop wearing it it's always okay Let's give people the choice. Mm. Let's always have the choice. But at the same time, yeah, yeah. you know, I would joke around if I saw a woman in a hijab, but she was wearing like skin tight clothes or a mini skirt or whatever, you know, like I'd crack a joke about that because it's contradictory, right? To what the hijab is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's supposed to represent modesty, but then there's no modesty. You know, like it, it's going against what it's, you know, the hijab is not just the, the, the scarf it's it's the whole mindset behind it right so i mm-hmm. joke about that but then you know i think maybe even like the last year year and a half i was thinking about okay someone like yasmin she was fighting to take it off so if you saw her wearing the hijab or the niqab and your reaction was well she must be homophobic she must be this she must be that right very but, good point yeah you know, it's, it's it's like it's 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 horrible to put all that on a like like just put yes being aside for a second but like it's putting all on a little girl saying okay at nine years old put this on because if not you'll uh, you're going to dishonor your family you know you're going to dishonor yourself you won't you can't get married you'll be you'll be impure like that's a huge heavy burden to put on a little girl but at the same time too like yes being you know she had to put on her i think the niqab she had to put on her or the, or the hijab at like you know a very young age 
to put on a little girl like that you, then you you represent misogyny you represent homophobia you represent that's also a huge heavy burden to put on a girl like someone like Yasmin who is not wanting to wear it but is forced to wear it right so it's yeah you know like like you said I agree with you we have to talk about it as a choice and yeah maybe you know like I said you know joking with someone who's got a hijab on but they're not you know like I saw it in uh, in Malaysia. She's wearing a hijab, but like it was like tank top and a microskirt. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, maybe she's come to some arrangement with herself and come, you know, I'm wearing this to represent my, my, my piety, but I'm not using it for modesty or whatever. Like, so instead of making a joke, you know, ask I, why you do yeah. it, right? Often they're not even thinking that. I mean, we, we ascribe it because we know the history of it. We know that hijab is, uh, you know, a lot of people listening to this will probably say, why are these two guys sitting here talking about hijab? Why are they telling women what to wear? And then what they won't realize is that hijab is a male invention. It was invented not by 21st century men like us, but by 7th century men um, who, uh, and this is, a, you know, it's an Islamic thing. It was invented by, in Islam, would you had a male prophet, right? You had a... Uh, uh, you have a holy book that refers to God or Allah as with male pronouns, right? You have um, uh, the four caliphs who were all male. They were all polygamous. You know, you had uh, the uh, 12 imams of your Shia. They were all male. Even in the reformist sects like the Ismailis and the Ahmadis, every spiritual leader has been male. There's not a single, not one from thousands and thousands of people, not one female spiritual leader in all of Islam. So, you know, if you you know, they're, they're going to tell us that we're mansplaining, but honestly, like hijab is, is essentially the it's it's the essence of mansplaining. That's what it is. It's basically a male prescribed um uh it's a male prescription for women. It's it's men essentially telling 7th century men telling women what to wear. That is what the hijab is by definition. So, there's that aspect, you know, we're talking about it, but um, most young girls, and I know a lot of young girls who wear hijab, young women who wear the hijab, uh, they're not even thinking of, you know, what it stands for historically, what it stood for. Uh, they're doing it because it's just uh, something that they were told to do. And often the same person wearing the hijab, for them, it is uh, both a choice and not a choice simultaneously. Or Schrodinger's hijab. But like, this is, and I'll explain why. So it, in my book, as you know, like, you know, one of the things I, I really um, try to drive home, the central thesis of it is uh, uh, to trying to separate Islamic ideology from Muslim identity. You know, Islam is an ideology, it's a set of ideas, it doesn't have rights or feelings, and Muslims are people who do have rights and feelings, they're human beings, right? So there is a distinction between the two. Um, so... So what happens is, and this is an example that I think I've given on the podcast as well before, on our podcast, is uh, that, you know, you are, and I've, I've seen cases like this, you know, where you have a young girl, say in, you know, we're both in Canada, say in Canada, in Toronto or Montreal, one of our cities, right? And uh, she goes to high school, and she has just always been raised to wear the hijab by her parents. They've told her, her mother wears a hijab, the whole family wears it, and she's been told that she has to wear the hijab. Uh, now she's going to high school. She's all of her friends are out there, you know, uh, doing stuff with their hair, you know, experimenting with makeup, the things that teenagers do, you know, uh, just whatever you do in a Western society like the U.S. or Canada, 
And uh, she wants to be part of that. She wants to belong in that group as well. Um, so privately at home, she's rebelling against her parents. She's like, why do I have to wear this? You know, maybe she sees a Majid Nawaz video talking about how it's not Islam. He's like, hijab is not Islamic. Mom and dad, why do I have to do this? And they have, a, you know, that discourse back and forth just like teenagers do. They're rebelling. So she's rebelling against the ideology behind the hijab. You know, she's exposed to Western ideas of feminism. You know, people are saying, if guys don't have to do this. Why do I have to do this? All those arguments are happening. And um, she is rebelling. But then... What happens is that, uh, you know, the, this uh, orange Cheeto guy goes down the escalator and he goes and then he makes an announcement uh, later that year saying that uh, we're going to um, we have to put a complete ban on all Muslims entering the United States until we can figure out what the hell is going on. And this is back when he said all Muslims, a Muslim ban. Um, so he does that and suddenly she sees her parents are hurt. You know, she sees her family's hurt. These are people that she cares about, and uh, this is her heritage. It's her, you know, ancestors, all of that. And um, now she says, "Well, fuck you, Trump. I'm going to wear this thing." Okay, now it's a symbol of identity. So if you ask her, "Are you choosing to wear it?" You look at the discussions with her parents when she's rebelling against it. In that sense, no, she's not. She's doing it because her parents told her to. But then you ask her if she is she choosing to wear it out of a symbol of defiance, as a symbol of identity um, against uh, anti-Muslim bigotry, and she'll say yes, that part of it is a choice. So, so you can have, you know, an element of it that is a choice and that's not, and it's causing a lot of confusion, um, mostly in a lot of the women who are wearing it themselves, right? Because they may not, they may have reservations about the ideology. Um, but they still, as an identity thing, they do want to wear it for defiance. So when you, when you see them, and I, I met, you know, I was in, in Europe, I think this is an even more uh, precarious thing because, uh, you know, I, when, I was, uh, when I toured for my book in the Netherlands and in, in Belgium, um, I did several events, several live events there. And uh, in all of those, there were women in hijabs and burqas. And I was thinking, I was like, you know, they must be interested in hearing the other side. And then they came up at the Q&A afterwards, and they said, yes, I, I, I am also an ex-Muslim, but I'm, I'm, I haven't come out yet. And they were wearing full hijabs and burqas. And I was thinking, you know, I'd walk down the street and I'd look at them and I'd make certain assumptions. But those assumptions are not true, because now I'm realizing what it is. So it's a, it's a very complicated issue, and it's a, it's, it's a hard thing to navigate, because there is a gender issue uh, that's very hot that's embroiled that it's embroiled in uh, there is a um, th there's a, a cultural issue uh, it's it's very there's an issue of choice there's so many different ways to frame it um, and then of course there's a history of the symbol i mean the symbol historically undoubtedly was a male invention used to oppress women uh, so um, i think that the way that we speak about it all of these arguments are legitimate I do think that the liberal argument about women who want to wear it as a symbol of identity in defiance um, against anti-Muslim bigotry, I think that is a respectable argument. It's an argument I have problems with, as I'm sure you do too, but I think it's a respectable, compelling argument that we have to engage with. And then I think that the argument that Yasmin has is obviously extremely compelling, and that's something that has to be engaged with too. And at least in the last year or two, 
I have seen, fortunately, you know, both of these coming things coming up. I know Yasmin has done a lot of um, television and media interviews. Um, she has become a very, very powerful voice on this and a very influential voice on this. And I've been just absolutely ecstatic to see that grow and to see her influence grow, uh, even on, you know, the mainstream liberal channels. A lot of liberal people are talking about this. I think the work that Masih Alinejad did, the images from Iran coming out uh, of uh, women burning their jobs, it's giving a different dimension to this debate that is resonating uh, with a lot of liberal and Western feminists. Um, it's people who I've spoken to um, who are now changing the way they think, but the reason that they're changing the way they think is because this is being framed not just as an issue of the piece of cloth and what it symbolizes, but as an issue of choice. And when you frame it, I think that that way, then I think we can make a much better argument. Yeah, no, I mean, couldn't agree yeah. more with that. Uh, I want to just actually, because you brought up the Shia thing. Mm-hmm. All right, so, you know, I was born in India, grew up in Canada. Up until, I guess, what, the first Intifada was what? Uh, like 80, 81, something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, up until that point, I'd never heard. Wait, the first what? Intifada. Into, like when they went. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Like Eight eighty one around that time, right? Mm-hmm. I had never heard the word Shia until then, so I was about eleven or twelve. Now, right. we left India when I was six. I, I hadn't heard. I okay. All I knew was Muslim. I didn't know Sunni Shia. Right, and then yeah. when I heard that, that's. And then, you know, I, I, I asked my dad, like, what are they talking about? And, like, my father explained it to us. And then, okay, then uh, until much later on, I didn't even know about, you know, like the, the different madhavs, the, you know, the different schools of thought, right? So mm-hmm. these were things that I learned much later. But, I mean, I like, I know you, you know, spent some time growing up in Saudi and uh, Libya as well, I believe, as well as Pakistan. I mean, like, and also being from a Shia background in Pakistan, which is majority Sunni. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm assuming you were much more aware of that than I was, like I said, because I was very ignorant of those things until, you know, later, right? Like, it was, there was nev- never anything told me, like, this is, sh- you know, this is Shia. So it's like, I think there's a, la- a a huge lack of knowledge about Islam. And even, like, you know, someone could come on and say, okay, Ali's an ex-Muslim, but, you know, being an ex-Shia coming from Pakistan is different than someone who was an ex-Salafi coming, growing up in Saudi, right? Like, it's two completely different things. Yeah. You know, I just, so, like, like I was just wondering, like, how, like, how aware were you of all those things growing up? Like, was it always there, present, or did you, you know, it took a while for you to, like, learn all the different nuances and everything of it? Uh, the, for, for me, it was always present, because, I mean, Shias are a minority, so we were always immediately exposed, and when we started learning about our religion and our faith you know when we were younger the moment we started getting indoctrinated with it uh, we knew that there were some differences between what we did and what other people did um the very obvious one being praying right so praying was one of those things where you know we shias pray with their arms to their sides um sunnis pray with their arms sort of folded in front of them you know on their chests or on their abdomens so uh that that was a very visible difference Another thing that drove me insane was when we fasted. We always Shias would, they they'd break their fast um, 
10 minutes after the Sunnis. So, you know, you're just waiting, you're counting down the seconds, you've starved all day, you're about to eat, and then all of your Sunni friends start to eat, and you got to wait 10 fucking extra minutes. And that was uh, because, you know, we, we do it at the end of sunset, they do it at, at the start of sunset. So, so that was uh, a thing. Eid was on a different day for some reason. Everybody, the Shias and Sunnis are programmed to see the moon differently, the same fucking moon. They see it the day one sees it on, yeah. So um, she has, will often have their e the day after, or day before, or whatever. So yeah, those differences were apparent. And then you know, I, I grew up mostly in Saudi Arabia. So when I was in Saudi Arabia, um, she has the. I, I was very acutely aware that you know I was from a Shia background because none of what we did was legal. So. With Shias, they commemorate uh, the month of Muharram, which is around the time that uh, um, Muhammad's grandson, Hussein, uh, had the war in Karbala, and he sacrificed himself like Jesus, sort of, in a way, um, to try and, and save Islam, um, in quotes, of course. And uh, so we they, that commemoration is, is banned in Saudi Arabia. You're not allowed to do that. And uh, they would often... You know the, the the way that they do it is there is something called a majlis. A majlis is when a whole bunch of people sit down, they listen to a lecture um, from someone called a zakir, who's a scholar, and uh, the zakir gives you the lecture, and then after that, you know, you hear the story of Karbala and the war, and people mourn and they cry and they self-flagellate even very very softly in Saudi Arabia, as we did there, and and often um, the police would around the Muharram time go around looking for places where this was happening and raiding these apartments and these houses. So we always had somebody with a remote. The the, the Zakir, we'd have videotapes of the guy speaking on TV. We'd always have someone with a remote ready to flip the channel um, if there was a raid and, and just pretend like it was just a get-together, a social gathering. So, you know, it, it, so we had to take precautions like that. Um, we went to mosques. We had to pray uh, with our the Sunni way. Uh, my dad actually changed the Arabic spelling of our name. It's uh, Ra and Dod, mm-hmm. uh, Wow, and then Ya, uh, which is, uh, or in Urdu, it's Rizvi with a Zwad. But in, he changed it to Ra, Za, Fa, and Ya. So it's Rizvi, um, just because uh, Rizvi is a very, or Radhawi mm-hmm. is a very, um, <laughs> it's a very classic sort of Shia name. So so there are many, so it's very, very acutely where. That that I was I was Shia and I knew about the differences between Shias and Sunnis. Um, we we didn't I I wasn't taught that Sunnis are bad. Uh, most of our friends were Sunni. Uh, most of my parents' friends were Sunni. So, you know, we always we even had some Shia Sunni marriages in our family. Um, so we didn't necessarily think it was bad. It was just basically taught to us that it's a difference, and we're probably right and they're probably wrong. Well, no, it's just like I said, he was just more talking about how there is, you know, like I, even now, like with especially like, you know, the last couple of years, there's been a lot of focus brought on to like these things, uh, like especially on the topic of Islam and stuff, but there's still a lot of ignorance. So it's just, you know, people don't realize that, you know, it, there's, there's something going on internally in Islam as well, right? It's not just... Islam versus the West. It's not one cohesive thing coming after the West. It's there's you know, internal struggles. There's you know like 
Iran and Saudi aren't going to be forming an alliance anytime soon, right? You know, like there, there's like mm-hmm. struggle going on there. Like there's, you know, because like I said, for even myself growing up in a Muslim household, I didn't know that until I was 11. I didn't, you know, again, didn't like different schools of thought. So I was just there, like, that's why I was kind of trying to bring it up. It was just. Yeah. Um, and then, sorry, and getting back to another thing about that, like you were, like we were talking about the Islamization. Because I'm just trying to, like, okay, sorry, I'm just going to, I'm just trying to, because I've done some things that I think are wrong, and I'm just trying to clear stuff up, and I'm just hoping, like, like, you know, talking about, okay, all these different things might be clear stuff stuff up. Like, I've used the term Arabization. You know, like, yeah. the, the idea yeah. of Arabized. But, in one sense, that's wrong. Yes, it's Arabs. Yes, Islam started in the, in the you know, in the Arab, Arabian Peninsula. But it was one specific tribe of Arabs that imposed their will on other Arabs. Like, I mean, like, you know, the Arabian Peninsula lost out on a lot of culture right at the start before, like, now what's going on in South Asia, right? Like, you know, North Africa, you know, you know like, their whole entire, like, the Amazigh, uh, you know, communities, the Berbers and all that, like, that was being slowly pushed away, like, what happened in Iran. Like, so it wasn't, like, you know, like, I prefer the term Islamization over Arabization. Like, it's, it, it's not, you know, like, the Arabs themselves, now, yes, it's, you know, it's money coming out of Saudi, money coming out of Kuwait, money coming out of Qatar. But the Arabs themselves were the first ones to have everything wiped out from this one little small tribe of Arabs that came out, right? So, I mean, like, it's... Because now when you say Arabization, you could include North Africa as well. And they're not technically yeah. Arabs, right? It's, like, I'm just saying, like, a term like Islamization, I think, would be better than Arabization. Like, to mm-hmm. not try to demonize any one people right yeah i i think that so so there's a a lot of that i agree with i think that if you use uh arabization as a blanket term um then uh it's probably not a good thing uh but uh, on the other hand i you know one of the one of the issues that i think uh the the leftist regressives often make is they they try to use um certain words based on whether they are offensive to certain people or they demonize other people or not. Um, and, and sometimes it's a little disingenuous. So in this case, I think it is accurate in, for, for a lot of context to talk about it as Arabization uh, because uh, Islam does include lots of aspects of Arab culture, most notably the language, right? So most of the times when people are talking about Arabization, they're saying that this was uh, essentially like, you know, the British Empire went and they colonized, you know, half the world, right? I mean, they, those were British colonies. And I'm sure that it was just, there's a lot of British people who didn't agree with it. You know, we didn't like what they were doing, weren't fans of the imperialism uh, thing, but it was part of, uh, it was the British Empire. You know, that's what they did. Uh, I, I think that with uh, the, the, this was like most of these countries, uh, the non-Arab countries and some of the Arab countries, unwillingly, um, where they, this was a tribe of Arabs, but it was Arab. So in that sense, that Arabization is a, an accurate thing. For instance, when people in Pakistan, uh, instead of greeting each other, or people in Iran, instead of saying, uh, you know, uh, Khuda Hafiz, or instead of saying, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the usual 
um, local greetings instead of that they're saying assalamu alaikum or um, you know Allah Hafiz or, or Alhamdulillah they're doing that all the time I, there's I, I hate that so much the Allah Hafiz the first time I heard it I'm like what what is that yeah know, that's well, that's Arabization, yeah. right? So Arabization is, you know, uh, Christian Arabs uh, and Muslim Arabs both use the word Allah for God uh, very frequently. So it's it's not, um, so a lot of it really has to do with the language and certain elements of the culture that, that were brought in, right? That came with the religion. So religion did co-opt uh, a lot of the culture. It did destroy uh, the regional culture that was not related to Islam, but at the same time, some of the things that actually came in uh, to Islam were also elements of uh, the local culture, uh, because the people who created Islam were part of a certain culture at the time, um, and that culture was undeniably Arab as well. So, so I, I'm kind of uh, I, I think there are two aspects to that. Yeah. So, so what I I totally totally respect your point, and I think that that's right. But at the same time. Um, I think it. I don't think it's inaccurate to call it Arabization. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like you know that, like that. that I hadn't really thought about that because the language thing. It's you know it's true. Like growing up, uh, you know, spoke Urdu. My parents we would say Ramzan, right? With, with yeah. A Z, where it was almost like a DZ like spelling. So, it was like, but now it's just Ramadan. Yeah. And the same thing like like you said with the Alafis and the Khalafis. It's, it's putting the language you know when you talk about it in terms of language yes it's putting that above it um but you know like the hijab okay whether or not it's it's part of because i'm using the hijab because it's so visual right so like malaysia 20 years ago you wouldn't see you know if you saw pictures from malaysia you wouldn't see the hijab so I wouldn't say the hijab is Arabization. I would say that's more Islamization, right? Like something in the mm-hmm. language, I could say, yes, it's Arabization. And then again, same thing, like what you're talking about with the, you know, they picked up different cultures. Like India is a perfect example. Like the Mughals were, you know, like it was when the Persians came in and they, they saw the Mongols, like, you know, I, I think that was the term they used for the Mongols, right? And so they picked up different aspects of each other's culture. Then if you go to weddings in India now, uh-huh. Even Muslims' weddings will have all four days, which is like a Hindu thing, right? It's not that's not your typical Muslim. Oh yeah, thing, yeah. Right. So they yes, they are picking up certain local cultures, or they're keeping certain things, um, to and not completely wiping it out. But for the most part, it's it's you know like it's just wiping out all cultures and. Yeah, that's called syncretism when you take like aspects of different you know when local cultures mix with. Um, imperial cultures mixed with certain religious cultures and religio imperial cultures and everything kind of gets together you know you'll see um, you'll you'll see a mix of that I mean Indonesia is one of the biggest uh, it is the largest Muslim country in the world with 250 million Muslims uh, it's got more Muslims than any other country in the world and and there are people over there where they eat dog meat too right so they which which uh, any of the other Muslim countries would scoff at, and 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 it is true. Like the, uh, the you know you have Turkish Muslims uh, who have less in common with with Muslims in India than Muslims in India have with Hindus in India, right? Yeah. So so there is a, a there is that 
mix that happens. And and this is one of the reasons why I think that, uh, you know, the difference between Islam and Muslims is so important. You know, I mean, it's set aside the Arabization. Um, there's definitely Arab influence, but the, the, the it, it, it's such a different thing. I mean, it's not that the Muslim people are extremely, extremely uh, diverse. You know, they're, they're very, very heterogeneous uh, culturally, linguistically, in terms of their traditions, their mindsets, their outlooks uh, all around the world, uh, whereas Islam is a is a is a totally different animal, and, and there are very few. I, I I and I argue for this too. I I don't think that the even the definition of the word Muslim uh, really means what it used to mean 1,400 years ago, right? And it doesn't. Nobody uses it that way either. Um, and it's a tough thing because we don't know how to define it, and that's what causes a lot of confusion. Right. Yeah. So. But yeah, no. I mean, like I said, it's just. Also, I think some of these things are because I was, like, this was not stuff I used to talk about until I got back from overseas. Because when I got back from overseas, it was started two thousand fourteen. So this is when everything was really going haywire, right? Like everything was just starting to get really ratcheted up, and you know, mm -hmm. you know, people going crazy on social media, then like all the insanity that we see now is just starting to come up in 2014 and I just, you know, then you had that whole thing with Ben Affleck and Sam Harris saying that's gross and racist and that kind of stuff and there's just like, like, that's when I was like, well, wait a minute, you, you're talking about a, a lot of wrong things and it's, you know, also like I wanted to talk about this because you'll hear people say, well, that's just their culture, that's just, you know, that's just Muslim culture. Like, no, it, it, it's, it's like saying Catholic culture, right? There's, there's, there's a huge difference between Catholics from, you know, even if, like, you take Catholics from, like, Spain and take Catholics from uh, any Latin American country except for Brazil, because that's more Portuguese, right? But uh -huh. they're not, their culture is not identical. There's They obviously have some certain things in common, like, you know, they'll celebrate Mass in similar ways, they'll celebrate, you know, Christmas, whatever, they'll have those holidays, but the culture from... Argentina versus the culture from Spain are two different things, even though they're both. Yeah, the day to day is is, is going to be different. Yeah. So, I think I think that that's true, and it's been interesting. Like in in in, in India, that the, the way that Islam spread to different places in the world is very different, and had there were different dynamics in play as well too. Like for example, in India, um, you know, you had the caste system. The caste system was very powerful. You know, you had higher castes and you had lower castes and there were some people, if you were born in a lower caste, that's where you were going to stay. I mean, you, you, there was no way to move up. You were, that's who you were. And that just went on for generations upon generations. And then, um, you know, it's, it, when Islam came to it, right, which which was in the Arabs and, the Islam, and Islam, they brought Islam. Uh, Islam was a culture. The Arabs were the people who came over there. They started... Uh, they offered something in Islam, you know, they basically said that if you are a Muslim, if you convert and say, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, and uh, you become Muslim, then uh, you're all the same. Right? So this was very appealing to people from the lower castes who found after a while we can, we can break this, like, you know, just progressive generational deadlock, this historical generational deadlock that we've been stuck in for centuries, and we, we can break it now. Just by saying la 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 Muhammad Rasulullah, and they did it, and then suddenly that disrupted the whole caste system, 
right? And uh, then the caste is now now you have people from the lower caste who are going up, and they have a whole different life, and they're, they're building a whole different society. And then uh, later on, the British Empire comes in, and uh, suddenly a lot of the things that were reserved and valued as upper caste things, like poetry and you know, like the upper caste, the Brahmins, all these used to sit and do poetry and literature and music. They used to do all that stuff and nobles, government work, industry, industry, and, and you know, all of that stuff was for the lower and the mid mid castes. And suddenly, like those people who were involved in, uh, like all the engineers and everything, now they're moving up to the higher level. So there's a there's a mixture of you know there's. This sort of Muslim invasion. There's the British Empire. Then there is the local Indian culture and their history, and what what their values were, and and the whole thing gets uh, thrown into disarray. This is you know sort of part of all these cultures mixing, and and that's what happened in India, and that became the face of I guess the Muslim societies in India. Uh, there's a mixture of um, British influence, there's a mixture of Hindu influence, and then there's a mixture of the Arab slash Islamic influence. Um, and that's what forms a lot of uh, Indian Muslim identity. Uh, you go to a different part of the world, uh, you go to North Africa, completely different situation. You go to Turkey, completely different situation. Long history of the Ottoman Empire that came with its own sort of cultural and social historical elements. So there is a there, there's some places that had more Sufi influence. There are many different kinds of Sufi influences too. So there's it's a it's a very um, you know, you see this kind of thing all over the world. So, I, I, I'm just a little. I am skeptical when people have this assumption that, you know, there are a lot of people who are Muslims and they hold on to their Muslim identity. But don't they know what's in the Quran? Don't they know what Islam is all about? And the answer is, no. The majority of times, they don't. Most people don't know the language. They have not thought about it enough. They're just out doing the same stuff that everybody else does. Um, and they just look at everything in terms of their tribe, uh, their their regional influences, their regional cultural and familial influences, and all of that plays a part into into how they respond to situations. Okay, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna this might end on a down note, but we'll see. Okay, <laughs> so if you look at like okay, the, all the protests that are going on in Iran, then there was the the women in Saudi Arabia were turning their abayas inside out, right? And then like some of the polls that are coming out more and more uh, people wanting to be secular, questioning atheists coming out of the Middle East, like even Saudi Arabia, I think it was like, what, 19 or 20% that said they, they were questioning. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. these people are actually fighting the authority and wanting the authority to relax, right? Yeah. And open up. But then you look at the seeds that Saudis spread, you know, with with all their money and their influence, and all these madrasas and everything. So a place like Pakistan, where a, cl- a clerical error, you know, where they took out one line that's saying Muhammad is the final prophet in the oath of office for politicians, that clerical error caused riots for three or four days in Islamabad, and the military mm-hmm. came in, and at one point the military sided with the protesters against the government, right? The population themselves went crazy when the government, when a perceived relaxation from the government came in. Like, so let's say... Saudi does loosen up or Iran does loosen up or, or some, you know, some of these countries who have been you know, like even places like Qatar and Kuwait, they've been spreading money out and spreading a very strict, literal, fundamentalist version of Islam in all these other places. If somehow or other they relax a little bit, 
will that be something that comes back to bite them in the ass because it's something that they've grown right they've spread this ideology now and the people there have picked it up and the people there seem to be like at least in pakistan they seem to be the people seem to be more severe than the government so if there's any type of even slight loosening from the government the people seem to be going crazy like i mean there was that yeah um, you had him on your uh, podcast the, the you had his son on the, the politician who was killed uh, by his own bodyguard because he was protesting yeah. you know like the government tries to relax a little bit and the people go crazy whereas in the middle east it seems like you know the people are fighting for their freedoms yeah i uh a long time ago when people were talking about i think this was before 9-11 we used to talk about this in pakistan a lot um because osama bin laden was kind of a hero there at the time and uh, people used to say well you know we want saudi arabia to be democratic we want them to be democratic and i used to think i was like holy shit i grew up there and i'll tell you something if you know the monarchy like those guys are having all these parties and everything you would be able to tell whether they were saudis or, or not or europeans but uh if you had a dem- democratic election then bin laden would win over them any day you know so yes i mean that, that's an issue they and they've created this monster i mean the so these countries, a lot of the Muslim and Arab countries have had dictators entrenched in power for decades and decades. Um, and these dictators, a lot, a lot of whom are actually secular, personally, um, they have used um, religion as an excuse to, to keep people down and to control people. You know, they, they've done it very, very unabashedly. Uh, so they have, uh, someone like Saddam, for instance, he would... Uh, Saddam Hussein would promote religion uh, to the extent that it kept his people under control, right? If he wanted to shut down any political opposition, he could just assume the role of a, a you know a very religious man and be like, "You're against Islam. We're going to execute for you for blasphemy," and then gain a lot of people's support. But on the other hand, uh, you know, if so, if people's beards got too long or if they started, you know, holding uh, too many sort of impromptu fatwa or khutbas or sermons in mosques, right? That he wasn't able to regulate. Then those people would be whisked away in the middle of the night. And you'd never hear from them again. So there was a he 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 had to use it in a way that he could manipulate people, but also not allow it to get enough power and influence that it would become a threat to him. So they've been playing this game, right? Even in Saudi Arabia, even in some of the more sort of really overtly religious countries they've been playing this game for decades and decades and it is the kind of thing where now you know when you when you uh, take that iron fist out of the way when you remove them the the whole place descends into chaos so you know you remove saddam hussein and iraq is still in chaos today right and the same kind of thing happened in egypt um so so this is a the same kind of thing happened in libya so so this is a it's an issue, it's a problem, but in the long scheme of things, it's still a transitional phase, I think. Um, I think it's just a matter of uh, whenever you have a, a a very strong sort of secular dictatorship uh, and secularism is enforced onto... And, you know, one of the things I wrote about in my book is that they, when people in, in uh, many Arab and Muslim countries, they don't think of secularism the same way that we here think of secularism. We associate secularism with liberalism and freedom. Right? They associate it with uh, enforced, like with dictatorships. 
is a lot of their dictatorships yeah, were secular. Sorry, like that's something I brought to, and I said the word secular in the Middle East, especially in places like Libya and Syria and you know even Iraq, mm-hmm. it's it's poison because of the dictators that were there because they associate secularism yeah. with that. Right. So, so what they did was like, what is Iran's association? Iran, we talk about, we joke about how they're always talking about conspiracy theories. So this is a conspiracy. That's a Jewish conspiracy. This is an American conspiracy. But, you know, what happened in 1953? In 1953, Mohammed Mossadegh was a, the prime minister who was democratically elected in Iran. I mean, exactly what we all want here in the West, right? For Iran to be a democracy, elected in Iran, uh, then a coup with the CIA and the British joined together in a coup. They overthrow this guy, right? And then they install a dictator, Western-friendly dictator. And the sh- eventually, you know, until the time of the Shah, the Iran, Iran is ruled by a secular dictatorship, um, a dictatorship that enforces secularism, right? So what happens when you, and the same thing with, that was the same thing with Gaddafi. It's the same thing with a lot of, like with Iraq, you know, a lot, a lot of these uh, Arab countries. So what happens with that? is that how do you oppose a dictator? Who are the people who are going to be able to mount an organized opposition to a dictator? You're not suicidal. I'm not suicidal. I'm not going to do it, right? A lot, a lot of people who are, you know, they're not going to have anything to organize around. But who is suicidal and has a reason to organize as a community, right? Islamic fundamentalists. They're, they're perfectly fine with jihad. They're perfectly fine with the idea of dying in the way of God. So they've formed these really strong oppositional groups, right? Whether you look at, if you look at Syria now, you know, most of the opposition to Assad came in the form of uh, Islamic groups. Uh, in uh, uh, Egypt, what happened when um, when uh, uh, Mubarak fell? What came in this place? The Muslim Brotherhood, Morsi, democratically elected, right? Now, now what happens is that whenever you have these situations, there is a transition. They have to go through this transition, and then people see the bullshit that their religiously, uh, that their democratically elected religious governments will bring them, and then it'll take a couple of decades for them to move to the next phase. This has happened throughout the history of the world. It's just that we get impatient. We think, oh, the Arab Spring happened, everything should change within a few years, but it doesn't. Uh, if you look at Iran, Iran is ahead of the game in that because they had that dictator, secular dictatorship. Uh, that was uh, brought down in 1979. Uh, this Islamic theocracy came in, but now, um, you know, we've all heard reports of it. Uh, there's, a, you know, Iran. The people of Iran are most likely the most pro-Western and the most secular people population uh, among any Muslim country in the world. And the the clerical establishment is getting old. Um, there's a lot of cracks in it. They're feuding with each other. Um, you know, we saw this with the revolution in 2009, right? Uh, where, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, there was a dispute about the election. So, so even the people, uh, the, some of the icons of the Iranian revolution are now fighting with each other. There's cracks in it. There's protests happening. There's women burning their jobs. All this stuff is happening. And, and the next phase that we see in Iran should be, well, because Iran would have completed that process of going through a, a long period of secular dictatorship, then experimenting with what, came uh, to replace it which is an islamic fundamentalist government and then what happens after that and and that's kind of a it would take a very long time it wouldn't take just a few years but um i i feel like that probably will be the trajectory um, for a lot a lot of these countries and if we do want to see 
something there, some sort of dem- democracy, liberal democracy, the way we value, we're going to have to wait much longer and have much more patience. I mean, you know, even the United States, even though it was a democracy, women didn't have the right to vote until the 20th century. You know, blacks did not have, there wasn't segregation existed until, uh, you know, 60, 70 years ago. Uh, you had, you know, they went through hundreds of years of slavery. There's a lot of these pains that go through it. And when we look back, it feels like it's just a blip, but but it wasn't. I mean, these, these things are messy. Democracy, the thing about democracy is, uh, it's enduring. I mean, if, if if I have a dictatorship and I want to build a whole bunch of bridges and a hospital and a skyscraper, all I have to do is give the order. But if I'm in a democracy, I have to get um, have parliamentary committees together. I have to get people from different parties to agree. So the change is very slow. Development is very slow, but ultimately, it's enduring. Um, and and I think that's that's something we have to keep sight of. Yeah, I'll shut up now. No, yeah. that's fine. No, I, okay, like, I yeah. agree with some of that. I mean, it's, just, like, I, I wasn't expecting something to happen right away. I'm just, I was just talking about the mindset of the populace, right? So, uh-huh. at least in Iran, the population wants a change. They, they're fed up, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And the population in Middle Eastern countries, and even some North African countries, like, it's pretty, you know, Tunisia is an example. They don't, they, they want to move away from the fundamentalism, but, I, like I said, I was... I was getting depressed by like the population in Pakistan who don't seem to want any of that. They're fighting the government when the government tries to relax. Mm-hmm. The population themselves are fighting the government. So, you know, mm-hmm. that that's where I'm a little depressed. I'm you know I, I I I'm hopeful for the Middle East and North Africa. I think I'm actually more hopeful for the Middle East than I am for Pakistan, unfortunately. Yeah, Pakistan is like a. I, I don't know what's going to happen in Pakistan. I'm very sort of uh, cynical about Pakistan's future as well. Um, I do think, and I, I, I'm still convinced that in, in Pakistan, there are still, even though we see these huge crowds of people showing up for the Mumtaz Qadri funeral and celebrating slain jihadists and, and, and things like that, uh, there is a, there's an element that seems to be scared. There's a majority, like a, a scared majority, and it's for that you're going to require a really strong government. And I have a lot of problems with Imran Khan, the current prime minister. But I think that some of the things that he's doing, like the acquittal of Asia Bibi, then retrying that case, you know, having the hearing, the appeal, and then acquitting her again and getting her out there, knowing what a sensitive issue it is and how how um, rabid the protesters are who are going against this. I mean, to the extent that they murder the governor of the largest province there, right? So, so they, so despite that, he has been able to um, stay in defiance of them. Uh, he gave a he gave a speech saying that you know we're not going to take this shit, and and he's uh, I think it's going to be slow, but I, I I actually feel like the only solution to this is you got to let the civilian governments. Um, you have to just let them be and let them go through the messy system that and, and the messy timeline that you have to go through when you're trying to set up an enduring democracy. The difference between Pakistan and India, it's, it's not like India didn't see this stuff in the last 70 years. They did, but they stuck through it. It didn't happen that, you know, okay, the moment you had some issue or some difficulty or some economic collapse or whatever, and suddenly the army came in. They're like, okay, we're taking over. New elections. 
and you have the same families coming in over and over again. In Pakistan, the the first peaceful transition of power from one civilian government to another was in the early 2000s, or in, in the 2000s, actually. I don't even think it was the early 2000s, but that's the first time. Otherwise, dict- the militaries just come in and step over, over and over. But you got to let the democratic process go for all of its messes and all of its issues and all of its problems. You got to let it take its course. And when you do, you know, the, the civilian governments have a mandate. They are elected. They have a mandate. So Imran Khan does have the political capital to be able to go up and say, fuck you, we're going to acquit Asia Bibi. Bring on your protests. And when they know that the government is strong enough and has a mandate, having been elected by the people, um, to be able to do that, slowly and incrementally, there is some hope, and see all the qualifiers I'm throwing in here, uh, that, that things can get better, as long as the army doesn't keep on stepping in. So I think that is the key for um, to just keep this process as as there has been recently of uh, just the civilian governments transferring power and for democratically elected governments to come in into power. Well, that is a little bit more hopeful than I thought it's going to end up being. So, but I'm a very optimistic guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I hope it does. <laughs> Everything does turn out well. Anyway, yeah. I don't want to keep you too too long because it is getting late. And oh no, this is fun. Yeah, we can, we can go for like ten minutes if you have anything else. Well, I mean, if you have anything you're you're coming up, or are you giving any talks anywhere? I know you're still doing the podcast or anything, or do you have anything coming up if you want to? Uh, yeah, I actually did. Um, I, I turned down some of the public speaking um, starting in November over the holidays, so I, I wasn't doing a lot of it uh, in the last few months just because I wanted to spend more time with my kid and stuff. But uh, I'm gonna that's gonna start picking up this year again. So you know, we're going to be doing some events and i'll keep you guys posted about it cool yeah well, anyways i like i said i will let you go thanks a lot if you just want to hang on for one sec i'm just going to stop recording thanks everyone All for right. listening and please like share and thanks a lot